the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. You can be seated. So, uh, in the last year, I took our two sons to the Museum of Science and Industry on two separate trips. And at the museum, we saw a lot of great things, but the, the, the crown jewel of our visit to the Museum of Science and Industry was the coal mine exhibit. Maybe you've been through this yourself. It's been there for a long time, and it's one of the best parts of the Museum of Science and Industry. The coal mine simulator is more realistic than you would imagine. You are uh, taken down by a tour guide who comes from a family of coal miners. No joke. That's not simulated. That's real. And um, it feels like underground rock, and it's dark, and it's crunched, and it's a maze, and it's dripping with water, it feels like at least, and sounds like. What I learned in that tour, and after that tour saddened me. It was a fascinating tour, but I was saddened from what I learned during and after that tour. First thing I learned that saddened me, miners, coal miners, literally inhaled their work. They literally inhaled their work. When coal dust settles into the air at unsafe levels, uh, miners would go down without masks, and without safety equipment, and breathe in that coal dust day after day. And they would develop a condition, maybe you've heard of it, called the black lung. Black lung disease. And that disease would literally destroy them from the inside out. They would inhale their work, and that work would destroy them. Um, There was a safety act passed in 1969 that reduced the black lung disease by a great deal, Uh, but it's back up now because mining companies aren't enforcing the law. Um, So I learned that miners literally inhaled their work. Number two, I learned that they poured out their resources just for the opportunity to be coal miners because they thought it would be a good deal. And it is an honorable profession that many people, you know, find great work in and dignity in. But the mining company, before reforms were passed, wouldn't pay their employees in dollars. They would pay their employees in tokens to the company store. And then you would take those tokens to the company store, which charged whatever price they wanted for basic household goods and groceries. And they inflated the cost so that the amount you were getting paid from the mining company wasn't keeping pace with what you had to pay out to the mining company store just to keep your life moving. And so what would they do? They'd open up lines of credit. And then over the the years, they couldn't pay off the lines of credit. There was a song that I learned as a kid that made so much more sense after after the tour of the mine. You know which song I'm talking about? What is it? I owe my soul to the company. Yes. 16 tons, another day older and deeper. St. Peter, because I won't come. Come on, all together. <laughs> I owe my soul to the company store. Isn't that incredible? 
the mining company bankrupted their own miners. Until the 1960s, for the most part, mining companies literally sucked the life out of their own employees, both because they asked them to inhale their work and they required them to pour out their resources, their time, their relationships, their money, all for the work, all for mining. In the process, these miners, which could have been dignified through their work, were killed and injured and bankrupted through their work. It got inside them, and it took everything. All right, now you and I, okay, we have commitments that we care about. Good commitments, honorable commitments, and we want to give our best energies to our meaningful callings, our meaningful work, work that we love, work that comes from the heart, what we get up every day to do. Maybe for you, it's providing welcome and hospitality through your homes, to your, to your own families, to your children, to your guests, to your neighbors. Or maybe it's going the extra mile for one of your students or one of your clients who could really use it. You can see it. Or maybe it's working for the dignity of the marginalized and the trafficked. Or perhaps the work that you love is, is raising children who are well-educated, well-loved, and well-adjusted. Maybe it's creating art that, that reflects hope and beauty in tragic situations. Or, or seeking justice and equality by enforcing the law. Maybe it's off, offering a needed service through your business, something that's really going to improve people's lives. Or maybe it's building up the kingdom of God through the local church or a parachurch. What is your personal mission? Think about it. What's your personal mission? Why do you get up every day? What compels your best work? A cause or a vision that makes you want to get out of bed? Some of us are still trying to find it. Some of us are still seeking credentials for this vision. Um, we're, we're trying to get tapped for this vision, get chosen to carry it out. The truth is this, the more we love our work, the more tempted we will be to let it kill us. The more we love our work, the more tempted we will be to absolutely let it consume and kill us. The more committed we are to our cause, the more tempted we will be to become a self-appointed martyr for that cause. What's your version of the black lung disease? What toxins from your work have you freely breathed in to your soul? A common one is this. It's a belief, I'm only at peace in direct proportion to how my work is going. Peace and wholeness inside is directly linked with the results on the outside. There's a hard wiring between the two. And we inhale the results of our work, whether for good or for bad, whether they're going well or not going well. How are your kids turning out? That's how I'm doing. <laughs> how are your grades going? Is it good enough for the graduate schools that you want to get into? That's how I'm doing inside. Or maybe, are people happy with you or not happy with you? 
the, that's basically how I define how I'm doing right now on the inside. That's my shalom level. You get a vote. How big's the laundry pile? Okay, how clean are the dishes? Are people signing up and showing up and buying what you're selling? We breathe in the coal dust of our commitments and our souls start dying. What are you giving to your version of the company store? How have your resources been just freely been just leaving your life and your relationships to keep your cause going? Your energy, your relationships, your time, your money. Hard work is good. It's honorable. It's noble. I hope you work hard. If you're not working hard, work hard. Okay? Don't get me wrong. But when our callings never say enough, when our callings never stop being fed, it's not a calling anymore. It's a killing. The truth is that, that even very noble work can dehumanize us. Isn't that crazy? The most ennobling work can dehumanize us. Setting things right in the world can warp things wrong in our souls. Serving God can become our God. And some of us are so deep in our own mind that we don't realize how dark it is anymore. Or how many toxins we have inhaled. And we, re, we need to be rehumaned. We need to be healed. We need to be revived. There is life inside of us that has died. That needs to be made alive again. Not just with a good night's sleep. Not just with vacation. Again, both good things. If you haven't taken a vacation in a year, take a vacation it's a good thing, but it's not enough. We need a spiritual renewal because this is a spiritual problem at its heart. We need renewal that is deep as we are, as deep as our souls are. We need the joy of our souls to be restored. We need it to be restored. Today we're going to tell the story of a well-educated, well-intentioned, very committed man who thought he was doing the right thing. He had found a cause worth dying for. He had heard the commencement speeches and been mesmerized and set off to change the world. And it was that cause that was destroying him from the inside out. He had the black lung in the worst way. And it was destroying the lives of others around him and it was destroying his own life. And the whole time, the whole time he was running after this cause with utter abandon, God was pursuing him at the same time, tracking him, prodding him, trying to get his attention, trying to break through the black fog that was surrounding his soul that he was breathing in. And something profound happened in the soul of this man, and it restored his humanity. It rehumaned him. It revived him. And I believe that the Lord is tracking us as well. He's tracking every single one of us here. He's tracking you in your mind. He's tracking me in mine. 
it doesn't matter if you consider yourself a, someone who knows God or cares about God or someone who's committed to the Christian faith. It doesn't matter. God's seeking you. I promise you that. He's seeking you in all kinds of ways, some of which you're aware of and some, some of the ways you're not. And he's seeking to restore us. He wants to revive us. He wants to rehuman us from the inside out. I invite you to turn to Acts 9 as we look at the story of this man that needed the presence of the living God to restore his own life. We've been in a series this summer called God's Distinct People. And uh, we've walked through the first chapters of the book of Acts. Uh, Next week will be our last week in this series. Um, So why God's Distinct People? Why why the, the book of Acts? Well, we, we've, been, we've been looking at the story of, of the early church being born so that we can see how God shapes the people and makes them distinct. He passes on his qualities to them. Um, so um, we are made into people, as we study the book of Acts, we've been seeking to be made into God's people um, who have God's qualities, his, his bold qualities, his empowered qualities, his holiness, um, his feeding, everything that we need to be nourished and to grow into maturity as God's people. Even as he sends us out in our work and in our mission to carry out his work, we're seeking to be made like him and seeking to do that together as a church. Today we're going to be talking about how we're, we are revived. We are God's revived people. I know it says um, uh, surrendered, but I'm changing the title, okay? Because um, God interrupted me in my sermon preparation, so I'm interrupting your life now. Um, So God has life in himself, and he gives us his life, which we need, because we are in a process of death, not just physical death, but spiritual death. And he interrupts us by giving us his life. Today's story is about a man named Saul. We're going to look at three stages in the life of this man. First of all, Saul descending into his own version of his coal mine, okay? It's going to lead to his death and the death of others. He's trying to please God, but without God. Second stage is at the bottom of the uh, mind, something incredible happens. He's flooded with light that blinds him. And then finally, Saul emerges out of the mind, revived and refreshed and restored. So I want to look together at his descent. Look with me in chapter 9, Acts 9, verses 1 and 2. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now hear this, okay? Saul was a very religious man. Um, In our parlance, we might say he's a very deeply spiritual man. And he was so committed to pleasing God as he thought God wanted to be pleased. Um, He devoted his life to learning the scriptures, the the Jewish scriptures, and and enforcing them. He thought he was supposed to enforce them in a manner of purity where he would stamp out anyone who who was not under alignment. Because Saul believed that, that as long as there was impurities around, as long as there were people who were kind of in and kind of out, um, God wouldn't be pleased. And the world would only be renewed 
as people who believed the wrong thing were snuffed out. It wasn't just that Saul's theology was wrong. It wasn't just that the content was off somehow. His relationship to his beliefs were toxic. You can have absolutely the right beliefs about God and life and have a toxic relationship with those beliefs. You can carry out those beliefs in a wrong way. Maybe the beliefs aren't about God. Maybe they're about justice. Maybe they are, they, they are about kindness. Maybe they are, they are about uh, the poor. Or maybe they are about economics. But your relationship with those beliefs, even if they are correct, can be toxic. And Saul's relationship with theology was toxic. And his relationship with people became toxic. Saul had the black lung. It's right there in verse, not, uh, verse 1 of chapter 9. Saul was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Commentators of Acts have rightly noted that it's not Saul breathing out the threats yet, not breathing out the murder yet, he's breathing it in first. He's getting ready. He's like a bull ready to charge. Before he charges, he's a big, deep breath of murderous rage because he is preparing himself to imprison and put to death people who are part of what he calls the way. Saul believed that he would not be okay until he snuffs out all the Christians. Unless all the Christians are snuffed out, I am not going to have peace in my soul. And so not, it wasn't good enough for him to imprison and hunt down all the Christians in Jerusalem. They scattered. They left. He had to find where they went and put them in prison and put them to death. There's a rumor that they had fled to Damascus. So he's going to follow them to Damascus. He wants to find them. He wants to jail them. He wants to prosecute them. And as he himself would admit later, he wants to kill them. Um, verse 2, we read um, that he asked for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Um, he wants to get official sanction from the highest Jewish authorities in Jerusalem to bring the law and bring the police with him to help him carry out his orders. There was, no one was telling him to do this. This is coming from his own ambition from his own idea of what God wanted. So Saul brings the muscle with him, and he brings the papers with him that he got from the high priests in Jerusalem. And he's got to travel through Samaria. Samaria is on the way to Damascus. We can even imagine Saul hearing about rumors about what happened in Samaria, this strange revival among the rejected people who were coming to know Jesus. And he may have even heard about, uh, about Philip one of the people he's out to get, preaching and um, carrying out signs and wonders on God's behalf. I would imagine that would enrage him all the more. And when he thinks about, when he hears about, about, um, about Peter and John coming down to lay hands on Samaritans and baptize them, and for them to be filled with the Spirit of God, how enraged you would be if you were Saul. Breathing in rage, breathing in threats, breathing in murder. 
Saul had the black lung. And right as he gets close to his target, right as he gets close to really a game-changing moment in his own career, perhaps marking himself among the Jewish elite forever, he found the Christians and he snuffed them out until they were gone. Right as he's about to walk up to the Damascus Gate, right as he's about to, as we can see it, in hindsight, get to the very bottom of his own personal coal mine, something surprising happens. Saul is flooded with light, light so bright he can barely stand it. Verse 3, now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. And we can even imagine the swagger in Paul's step. And suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. Now consider that this is in the daytime. This is perhaps high noon when the sun is at its brightest. And it's brighter over there than it is over here in the USA. Okay? The sun is shining. But the light from heaven is so bright that it overshadows the sun and the sun's light. It overshadows Saul's frame of reference. And Saul falls to the ground, something that Saul would not do of his own volition, something that Saul would do only in an encounter with the living God. And he heard a voice saying to him, and later he would testify that he saw the Lord speaking to him. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Whenever Luke, our author, wants to underline something from the Lord Jesus Christ to an individual, he will record Jesus using that individual's name twice. Simon, Simon. Saul, Saul, I have a question for you that's going to get at the heart of things. There's a lot of things that Jesus could have asked him about. A lot of sins Saul had committed. A lot of theology that Jesus could have communicated. But he had one central question for Saul. A central question that would undo Saul. That would question the very heart of his vocation. Why? Why? Some of us need to hear a similar question. Why? Why are you driving so hard with the work that you love, with the cause that you love? What's underneath that? Are you seeking life? Are you seeking God's approval or a parent's approval? Why, Saul, are you persecuting me? Jesus revealed to Saul that he had so closely identified with the suffering church that when Saul was attacking them, he was attacking him. And in so doing, he revealed his cross. He revealed what Saul needed to see, which was the glory of God in the face of Christ, the glory of God in the cross of Christ. Saul, do you see the suffering church? Do you remember Stephen? Do you remember his bleeding, mangled face from all the stones thrown at him? That's me, Saul. And when I gave my life on the cross, 
that is being, in some ways, pictured for you in the suffering church, that was for you. <laughs> you've, been, you've been seeking out my people, and I've been seeking you. I can bear your sins, Saul. I'm looking at you, Saul. I can see right through you. I can see what your idols are. I can see what your first love is. And I'm telling you that it's sin and that I can handle it. I'm looking at you, Saul, and I'm telling you that I emptied myself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. And I did that for you. I was born to raise the sons of earth and you're one of them. And that, Saul, is the glory of God. You've been seeking the glory of God. Let me show you the glory of God. You saw it in the face of, of, of Stephen before he died. You see it in the face of every persecuted Christian that's running from you. And you can see it in me now, Saul. I was crucified for you, and I'm looking at you, and I want you, and I'm after you, and I was raised to life. I'm the Lord of the nations. I am the object of your worship, and I give living water to anyone who's thirsty. Living water that once you take it, it will become in you a well of water springing up and bubbling up into eternal life. I've got that for you, Saul. You can't get that from purity. You can't get that from your job. You'll be thirsty again, Saul. See the glory of God in the face of Christ. I've been seeking you out with it. And here I am, Saul. What are you going to do with me? That was the answer to, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus. That timeless self-declaration of God's glory. I am Jesus. I am the object of your worship. I will declare it before you. I will be... Even as I was humbled unto death, I will be lifted high. Even as I can meet you at the bottom of your coal mine, I can take you up to eternal life. I can raise you up all the way to the glory of the Father. That is the glory of God in the face of Christ. And that is the vision that we need to be revived. We, our souls need to gaze upon Jesus in the same way that Saul's Saul soul gazed upon Jesus. We need to think about the death and resurrection of Jesus. We need to ponder it, chew on it. Think about his promises. Some of us need to be interrupted from our work, our good and noble work. We need Jesus to ask us, why are you, why are you pursuing this? What's, what's motivating you? We need to be interrupted and we need to gaze upon the light of Christ and be revived by it. So at the bottom of the mind, Saul is flooded with light and it blinds him. He does see the Lord, and he has enough volition to respond to the Lord. There's no turning Saul into a robot here. Saul is responding as a human would, a fully restored human would respond. Jesus never steps upon us with his glory. Jesus puts glory in us from his glory. He rehumans us. He revives us. He makes it possible for us to speak like a parent with a child, speaking to the child, speaking life into the child. Finally, the child's able to speak back. It's what the Lord does with us. So Saul descends into the mind. He's flooded with light, flooded with glory. And the light blinds him physically. And he stops eating and he stops drinking. He's blind and he's fasting and he's not even drinking water for three straight days days, I will tell you that this nourished him. It was actually in this three-day period where he could see for the first time. 
He could see things rightly for the first time. It was in these three days where he wasn't eating, where he was feasting for the first time. Feasting on living bread for the first time. He could commune with his Savior for three days. How sweet that must have been to be the, the shackles of legalism broken. He wasn't a slave anymore. He could be a son. Just taking this in, processing that moment, this incredibly compressed moment, he could just be fed. And in this time where he wasn't drinking, he could just take in the living water. It could just bubble up. It could just, it could just quench his thirst. And in the deepest possible way, he would never thirst again. He ate every word that came from the mouth of God. He saw the glory of God. And he drank from the living water that Jesus gives to all. All in a three-day period where Jesus had stopped his work. Friends, as I said before, some of us need a retreat. If you've never taken a prayer retreat, I want to encourage you to take a prayer retreat. Not a Netflix retreat. Not a, I'll just answer email from a different location retreat. Not a, I'm going to bring a thousand books with me retreat. But a retreat, truly, where you are able to disengage from your labors and feast upon the living bread that comes from the mouth of God, the living water that comes from the heart of God, the glory of God, to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I want to commend to you a 24-hour period where you stop doing work, where you get away. I recommend highly the University of St. Mary by the lake in Mundelein, if you can make it out there. There's also retreat centers in Chicago. If you want more resources, I'd be happy to provide them for you. I want to commend this to you, friends, because no matter what work we're called to, the Lord wants to commission us for that work. But before we can do that work, we need to be fed by the Lord. We need to be revived by the living Christ. And we also need to breathe in the Holy Spirit. Some of us do have the black lung or we're on our way. Not only do we need to ponder Jesus Christ, but we need to breathe in his Holy Spirit, which has the power to cleanse us from the idolatry that we have given ourselves over to in our work, in our labor, no matter what it is, no matter what we're called to do. I love how Saul is restored, and I can almost picture him coming out of the mine. Um, Jesus goes to Ananias, and he's like, hey, Ananias. He says, I want you to go to Saul and pray for him. Saul has seen a vision that you're going to come to him and that you're going to pray for him, and he's blind right now. And Ananias says, I don't know about that. This is the guy that wanted to kill me. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. You're going to go to him, and you're going to pray for him, and you're going to trust me. Okay? And so Ananias obeys Jesus, and Ananias finds Saul. And what a beautiful thing it would have been for Ananias, as a brother in Christ, finally, to, to give Saul that, that touch from the church to lay his hands on Saul and say, I'm going to pray for you in the name of Jesus. And for Saul to be able to see again, for Saul to be publicly baptized into the community of faith. Saul then, it says in the text, receives the Holy Spirit. 
and he's a changed man. And the work of Jesus revealing himself is, is, uh, is set in stone through the Holy Spirit. I want to encourage any of you, if you are on the journey to knowing Jesus and you are ready to confess Christ, I want to encourage you to go to a prayer minister today who can lay their hands on you and pray for the Holy Spirit and set you on the road to being baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in this community. Or if you feel disconnected from the Holy Spirit, disconnected from the glory of God, I want you to encourage you to receive the laying on of hands through a prayer minister for the reviving of your souls. And I want to encourage you also to come back. In a couple weeks, we're going to start a new series which will explore some of these themes. It's called Dreamers in the Hands of a Loving God. It's about Joseph and his dad and the rest of us. And we're going to get into all kinds of themes that touch on our lives being revived and set right so that we can walk with the living God. So get prayer, ponder Jesus, come back, and worship with the people of God as we are revived by the vision of the living Christ, the glory of God, and the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen. I want to encourage you now to stand as we confess our faith.